Hi, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listnick Behind the Curtain. Ordinarily, I say it's my chance to leave the world of politics on the TV and then come to the world of theater and the arts here in the podcast world. But today, we kind of uh, blend some worlds together because my guest is somebody who knows a thing or three about the world of politics, both from his own work and maybe because he's part of a legendary uh, political analyst TV family. My guest is Luke Russert. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book for many weeks on the New York Times list. Look for me there, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. His dad, of course, the legendary Tim Russert. And now we get to talk about the book together here in the podcast. Luke, good to see you again. Hey, good to see you again, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. So you join me for the Midday Show, Midday News, and people that want to watch that briefer interview can go there. But my guess is people who saw that want to hear more from you. And this is the opportunity for us to go a little more in depth. So I've got all sorts of questions I didn't get to ask you uh, on television. Um, by the way, I you know, I know when, when your dad passed, I know where I was. I was on an airplane because it floored me. I was on an airplane, got the text, got the news, and man, it bummed me big time. But I wasn't Tim's son. Um, you were not even in the country at the time. No, I wasn't. Uh, I was in Florence, Italy. I was three weeks out of graduating from Boston College. And I had actually just been with my father in Rome two days prior. And the last day we ever spent together was perhaps fittingly at the Vatican, uh, watching a, a prayer service with then Pope Benedict and touring the Sistine Chapel and having a wonderful dinner afterwards. And uh, my father went back to record the Father's Day edition of Meet the Press, which was that weekend. It was a very special one for him. And I continued on with uh, my mother and the woman I was dating at the time uh, to Florence and to, to see the statue of David in, in those sites and to kind of continue a trip around Europe um, and then eventually get back to America and, and figure out what the next steps were, likely grad school. Um but yeah, when that happened, it was, uh, I, I say in the book, it was, it was sort of a saving grace that we were away. And the reason why I say that, and it might sound strange, is that it gave my mom and I a 24 hour period to really grieve together without being inundated with what became a national news story. I don't think we expected the story to be as big as it was and to have the legs that it did for weeks and months after uh, the fact. So to have that 24 hours together, mother and son, uh, to sort of brace ourselves for a very new and scary world that was, was coming ahead of us. Uh, turned out to actually be a, a very a good thing uh, in, in in a sense that we were able to 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 talk through without having all the pressure of what was going to be the memorial for Tim uh, coming up. Yeah, and 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 yeah. And by the way, you you say your mom, folks should know this, but not everybody does. Your mom is just not just some mom out there uh, <laughs> either. Your mom is incredibly well known and accomplished in her journalism field as well. Maureen North. Correct. Maureen North, and she's a writer for Vanity Fair. And before that, she was one of the first female correspondents at Newsweek. So she's had a very long, illustrious career on, on the print side and written two books. And uh, she had a, a, a wonderful sort of, shall we say, reignition a few years ago because her book, which is called Vulgar Favors, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, got made into an FX series. Uh, which won an Emmy Award. So that was I love that series. Yeah, it was a good show. It was a good show. They did a really nice job with it. And I think it was funny because she called me up when the producers were 
asking her because the book had, you know, it had been 20 years and she got a call from one of the producers and he said, you know, this is so well written. We won't even have to really write a lot of dialogue here for the script. We can just pretty much go off the quotes in the book. And she called me up and she's like, do you think I should do this? I said, absolutely. You should do it. It's been sitting there for 20 years and it, 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 it shot the book back up. A lot of people have read it now. And, you know, it's interesting. I think it was a book that when it came out in the late nineties, that was still a very delicate world that a lot of people didn't want to touch into sort of the gay subculture of a serial killer, et cetera. And I think as time has gone past and America has opened up more, it's something that, hey, you know, this was something that did not get enough attention at the time by any means. And the law enforcement made a lot of mistakes because they didn't understand the world in which they were working in. So I think they did a really good job with that at FX. I was really happy for my mom. to. They, they, they really did. And you talk about law enforcement making mistakes. We're not going to get into that conversation. But I mentioned to you uh, last time we talked that I used to work for NBC. Um, I was the jury expert for NBC during the OJ days, um, although I was a jury consultant, so that's they plucked me from the courtroom to do it, and I stayed on. But we also did the Phil Spector case, and when HBO made a movie of that, I was hoping that Darren Criss might play me In the movie, it turns out they cast some lady in a polka dot dress. I need therapy over that. We'll talk about it some other time. (laughs) So this this adventure that you write about and look for me there, um, along with your family dog at the time named Chamberlain. He didn't go everywhere with you, but he, he was certainly part of the adventure um, and will be in the movie when they make one, I'm sure. What's really notable about this, and of course, I, you know, I guess everybody feels like they know you because I, I've seen you from your very first day on NBC. And so you're just kind of part of everybody's family, as was your dad. Um, this was unpredictable for you. This was this was completely out of character for Luke Russert. Yeah, I think that what ended up happening was I was turning 30 in 2015, and I thought that was old, which it's not. <laughs> but no. I think more so than a lot of people, I was acutely aware that time was finite. And I lost my father at 58. Um, my mom's father had also passed at 58, who I never met. Uh, my grandfather, I lost a friend at 27. So I think the the time on the clock was more imprinted in the front of my mind than than most people my age. And I got to sort of feel some anxiety about that and kind of figuring, well, is this really what I want to do? Do I want to be a network news correspondent? Do I want to go up in this world and, and see where it plateaus? Um, and I, I was wrestling with that, uh, as I, as I turned 30 and sort of figuring out, okay, you know, this is sort of where a lot of people start putting down some roots. I had friends that were getting married, getting mortgages, some even starting families. Uh, and I never really had had an opportunity to sort of think for myself. Is this, I was sort of thrown into things. And I even, I attribute that going back earlier in my life, which I talk about a little bit in the book is one of the things that my parents is they were very highly accomplished, but they expected a great deal. So I was always sort of working towards something. It was always sort of accomplish this, accomplish this, accomplish this, and never really felt like I had a minute to breathe. And interestingly enough, um, I had a chance encounter at the Capitol with House Speaker John Boehner, who I covered rather aggressively. And he saw me. A great story in the book. Yeah. And he saw me in the hallway and he said, uh, you know, I want to talk to you. Come to my office. And so I go down to his office and he's smoking a cigarette and reading a golf magazine. 
And he says, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you invited me into your office. What do you mean? What am I doing here? I'm the speaker of the house. He said, no, no, no. What are you doing here on Capitol Hill? What are you doing here in Washington? He goes, I've seen you here. You've been here eight years. You can do the job in your sleep. I just want you to know there's a lot of folks that spend 20, 30, 40, 50 years here, and they never quite know that where the time went. It's a very transactional town. There's always the next election. There's always the next bill to be passed. There's endless banquet circuits. There's endless things to do, et cetera. Just make sure that if you get caught up in the Washington bubble and the Washington swamp, it's what you really want. You might be well served to go see different parts of the country or different parts of the world for a minute and just and 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 see how uh, the real world is to a degree. And it was a very interesting conversation because it sort of met the moment. And it was a, a messenger who I respected. He had a very similar story to my father. He was the first member of his family to go to college. Worked. Uh, menial jobs to pay for tuition, just like my dad. Uh, so when he said it, it wasn't sort of a response of don't tell me what to do, old man. It was a, okay, this is somebody who's worked very hard for everything he has in his life. He's the speaker of the house. He's at the top, 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 second line of the presidency. And he's saying, you might be well served to look around and see what else is out there. And I took those words to heart and that sort of started a process of, all right, I want to see who I am independent of this job, independent of my hometown, independent of of my last name. You know, there's something about being a Russert. I've got a a copy of your dad's Big Russ and Me signed by him and you, by the way. Uh, Interestingly enough, I guess there was a version of it by Easton Press. That's what I have. And you both signed it. Um, uh, But but the point is the notion of family, uh, it just the Russerts are different. The Russerts are, look, there's so many people who do what you do. And I'm in that, you know, political journalism world as well and it can consume you and maybe it was consuming you but you had other priorities in life here's my question and i'm trying to not ask the questions that you've been asked by every msnbc and nbc anchor and i've seen the interviews they're wonderful but i yeah this is our chance to do some different stuff would your life have been different would things have been different you were an only child i have just one brother but if you had had part of a large Catholic family and had seven, eight brothers and sisters, would would this story be the same? It's a good question. You know, I think it's one of those things we're growing up, especially as an only child from a young age. The question was always posed, like, do you wish you had a brother? Do you wish you had a sister, et cetera? And my answer has always been is, I don't really know, because I was, I, I never had that experience. You know, I got used to being an only child and, and being alone and being at my own pace. I had a lot of very close friends. My family my mom and dad were were very supportive of if we went on a vacation, they would say, you could take a friend. You know, we, we want you to be able to have the opportunity to socialize with someone your own age, et cetera. So I had some very close friends growing up, which I still keep very much in close contact with. So that's been nice. Uh, but it's one of those things where, yeah, I think some of that would be different. Having someone else to help shoulder the load a little bit uh, would, would 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 be nice at times. On the other hand, I sort of see it as as my calling in life. Like this responsibility was placed on me, and I was acutely aware of it from a young age. Uh, you know, one of the things I talked about is I realized sort of things were different when I was probably nine or 10. And I, I, I would go over to my friend's houses and I wouldn't see their dad, like a little glass box, you know, on, on top of the, on the top yeah. of the dresser. And I, I sort of realized the magnitude of when we would travel in airports, people would stop them. And I was like, wait, we're, you know, we're in a different city. We're in Columbus, Ohio. How does someone in Columbus, Ohio know somebody from Washington, DC? So it's a good question. I think it's one of where, you know, you, you kind of take the, what, what you were given and, and you make the best of it. Um, 
I would, I would have, one of the things I joke about, because my mom, as I write in the book, is pretty hard charging. I would really like to have seen how she would have dealt with a daughter, especially a teenage daughter. Yeah. I would say to Russ, like, I was way easier to deal with than a teenage girl that you would have had, mom. But, but here's the thing. A lot of people would say, oh, yeah, your mom would have spoiled the daughter and all that. But you you write about your relationship. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. no. That poor girl would have had it way worse than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's where I was going and how she raised yeah, you because yeah. your dad gave you the easy time. What do you want, Luke? I'll buy it for you. Right, uh, and, your, and your mom right. gave you the rough time. You think she would would have been the same with a sister in the house i i i think that would have been very hard because she would have really been she was very demanding of me and i think for you know one of the things that really got in my mom uh, to still guys my mom to this day is you know as a woman you have to work way way harder and you have to really understand the environment that you're operating within and she from a very young age was a trailblazer i mean she went to the peace corps in colombia in her in, in the early 60s in her in her 20s and i think there would have been especially with a daughter a real expectation of you sort of have to carry that that torch of female empowerment and what that means and i, I think that's something that i i didn't have to deal with which would have been a, which would have been which would have been a lot you also get a lot of lessons. So I love the fact that you write about both your parents in the book. Clearly, the focus is about dealing with the loss of your dad. But you say that your mom taught you that you won't get anywhere in life when you're sitting on the sidelines. She had she had faith in you and she encouraged you to go on this adventure. I'm not sure. Did, did she know before she read the book about the you know the time you almost drove off the road? I mean, all that other stuff was did she know about that. She knew bits and pieces of it, but you know it's interesting. She's somebody that, as I mentioned in the book, and my dad was very risk adverse, but my mom was very adventurous. And you know, right after nine eleven, a few months after nine eleven, you know, she traveled to Tajikistan and Uzbekistan to follow the Taliban drug trade and how that was fueling the war over there and fueling co- terrorism over there. And she had no fear about that. Uh, and I think that's just sort of how she's hardwired, how her DNA is. You know, as I read in the book, like when I was going to Bolivia, I didn't have the right visa and she still encouraged me to go. Uh, it was 14,000 feet up. I don't do well in altitude. She still encouraged me to go. And I think for her, there's a sort of, uh, and, and to this day, you know, she's still very active. Um, there's a fear of sitting still that, that you, you can't sit still or else everything's going to pass you by. So, so get out there and, and, and go seek. Uh, and I took that to heart. And so I try to I try to blend both my parents' styles. Uh, I'm not as hard charging as my mom, but I'm not as risk adverse as my father either. Uh, one of the great and maybe I'm the only one who loved this particular story, maybe because I'm just relating to it. With my own parents. I don't know. But I love the fact that she encouraged you to have all of these adventures. But at some point, something changed in her. And it's the moment you write about when you went to the house, she gives you a cup of tea. So, you know, you're in trouble and, you know, sat down and the greatest line of all times, are you writing or just playing around on Instagram? What were you doing that, that gave this adventurous mom who wanted you to go through this, this notion of going, the hell are you doing kid? I think for her, I mean, it was one of those things. It's sort of a mother's intuition. Right. And she saw, was she right? Um, I, I, I look at it where is my, as I write in the book, my first reaction was, well, I think it's just hypocritical because you spent a lot of time traveling around when you were younger and it's not like I have been a bohemian nomad my entire life. I covered Capitol Hill for eight years and won an Emmy. So there is something to stand on for sure. I think though, at that moment, there was a sort of concern of, okay, what is, what is this all going to build up to? And what is this all leading up to? 
Um, and at that point, I felt there was still more in the journey to see. I certainly appreciated it. I think moms are, their intuitions are correct to some degree. And that was sort of the beginning of being more untethered, more untethered that I think, uh, I probably should have been. But again, you know, retrospectively looking back on it, it's all sort of sort of, I didn't know I was going to write a book at that point. And I think for her, when she says, are you writing? It was more sort of, are you keeping up with these journals? Because I think in her mind, it was always the journals would provide some sort of clarity along the way. And they ended up doing that. So if anything, that was the motherly push is, you know, write, write, write in the journal. Uh, but I, what I, something. one of the things I love about the book is, yes, it's an adventure. I mean, for people who think they're about to read a travelogue, th- there's some of that. You, you do get that. We know where you've been. And I want to ask you about some of those places, but I'm assuming if you wrote about it, I can ask you about it, right? Yeah. And okay. I'm assuming I can ask you a question that nobody has asked you thus far. <laughs> okay. Here's my question. Here, yeah. Well, here's, I've just, so it's, you've given me permission because you have moments in the book of love and lust. And you had a girlfriend back in the U.S. named me. I would have never asked you this on television, but this mm-hmm. is like you and me having a glass of wine and we're just kind of talking and we just don't have the wine. But, but you had a girlfriend named Mary and then, other girls like Sophia came into your life on this trip and you had to, I told you I read the book and you had to wrestle with this issue of, you call them your inner demons of faithfulness versus the drives you were having and convincing yourself. I can see every guy, I don't mean to be sexist with that, but every guy kind of going through this, like, ah, Mary will probably dump me anyway. All these things you kind of put yourself to go through. So I'm sort of curious to, to not making you relive that moment, but when you look back at the decisions you made to essentially do things that, that didn't involve Mary, how did it influence your your view, your faith in relationships today? You can answer that question any way you want. And I don't no, mean to cross a very good line. Question. It, very good question. I think what I, you know, it, it, when I wrote that in the book, I think there was a part of me that said, are you oversharing? Is this too much? But I always thought that it was important to put it in there because there's an honesty to it. And one of the things that I did not want to come out of the book is to be St. Luke, right? because <laughs> I, I don't want to live up to that. We had one of those. None of us are, right? And I think that sometimes people write about their experiences and there's good and there's bad. And so you see the totality of the person. Sometimes that we try to make people that write um, very personal books to be make them out to be deities. And, and I never wanted that. And I think in that situation, one of the components of it is, is oddly enough, I've had this conversation with people that have gone through similar things, is when you go through sudden loss and you go through grief, there is a component of the psyche that is very much hedonistic in the sense of I'm going to die tomorrow. The same thing that happened to dad is going to happen to me. The same thing that happened to my friends is going to happen to me. Like, you know, get your kicks in before we all go out, et cetera. And I think that's something that you have to balance and you have to be mindful of that that can be a demon that can creep up on you and, and push you in, in a bad direction for sure. Uh, so that's sort of something that I learned. That's sort of something that I shared is to be way, be mindful and be aware of that. I think going forward, it's uh, one, of, one of the things you do learn, though, as you age, is that those types of relationships uh, that are based on trust, that are based on love, are very important and uh, ultimately make you a better better human being. And it's funny, you know, I, I met a lot of interesting nomadic people along the way, yeah. people that never really did settle down. Uh, and I could tell that the majority of them were kind of searching for something. There was something off. And whether that was a place to call home or a place to call a partner or someone to call a partner, et cetera, 
Uh, and I kind of came to the realization that like, I didn't want that for me because you can only, to me, you can only do that for so long. You can always travel and, and come back, but the people who really go out there and keep it going and going and going and going and going and have these just endless amount of dalliances and experiences or whatever, you really got to be hardwired for that uh, because it takes a toll on you both emotionally and physically. Moving forward, I, do you think that you are one day you're the better husband, you're the better person because of all of that? Do you look back? Oh, sure, and yeah, some of those sure. decisions for sure. And I think I think one of the things that we see in society that is kind of scary is there is a lot of pressure put on people to get married or to you know progress into that next stage of their relationship. And I can tell you this: I've seen this firsthand. I, there's, I'm at that age now where people are starting to get divorced, right? <laughs> you can see that there is something that they should have dealt with earlier on uh, that they never thought to because the idea was, oh, you need to do this or, you know, the, it's stability and you have the white picket fence and the two-car garage, et cetera. Uh, so, I, 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 look, it's different for everybody. I also know people... You know, I'm the godfather of the child of a high school sweetheart couple, and they're and they're great and strong. So it's everyone. Everyone's different, but it's a good thing to be aware of for sure. Um, of course, you you do write about the adventures in all these countries. Your mom met up with with some of you for some of it for you, whatever. But the, one of the things that really caught my attention was Vietnam. I've never been, I've seen a lot of the world. Not like you see, if they don't have a, like a four seasons, I'm not going. But um, <laughs> sometimes people say you want to go camping. You can sleep on the dirt. I'm staying nearby at the Ritz. But anyway, um, one of the countries I have yet to, to go to is Vietnam, and I've always wanted to go there. And you talk about how layered and complex that country was. And so here's my question. You, you said you went there for your parents, and every American needs to see the country. Is it about the Vietnam War, or was there something else? So it's a good question, because I grew up in a house where you know, my dad went to John Carroll University right down the road from Kent State. He remembered that vividly. Uh, my mother protested the war. She saw Martin Luther King give a speech against the war, actually, in, in her life. So, and in, in obviously, uh, what happened with Bobby Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King and, and sort of the turmoil of the 60s and how so much of it revolved around Vietnam. So, it's something that had always come up at our dinner table. And I always felt just the culture that I grew up in, whether it was the movies or the music of my parents, so much of it had to do with Vietnam, whether it's someone as you know gentle as Joan Baez or as hard rocking as John Fogarty or the movies or the Broadway play hair. Yeah. Right. Or, or the movies like Apocalypse Now or Platoon or, you know, uh, it's all the Stanley, the Stanley Kubrick movie, Full Metal Jacket. So it was something that was always talked about at our dinner table. And then I picked up in my parents' culture consistently. It all kind of came back down to Vietnam. And my dad had never been there, which I always thought was ironic because um, he had spent so much time trying to not go there. Yeah. And my mom had never gone there. And I had this desire to go there. And what it taught me was that it, it, the decision to go to war, especially for one to sort of like stop something like, oh, the, you know, the communist takeover is going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. It's something that really needs to be measured. And what I mean by that is here I am in this country where uh, nearly 60,000 Americans were killed, tens of uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of civilians in Vietnam were killed in Cambodia in the area at the time. And you walk down the street and the people couldn't be nicer. And, you know, Under Armour has like a factory there, right? So it's like the capitalism is there. The capitalism ended up winning, right? And it's like, what was the cost of all of that? And I think we now look back on those moments and think, okay, there's there could have been things done a lot better and we should not get involved in these types of things. But 
for me, I think it was very important because it, it shows what the cost is and is it really worth it? Uh, and that's something that we need to ask ourselves all the time whenever there's any battle. And I really learned that uh, firsthand in Vietnam. And yeah, it's, it's, you, you go there thinking as an American, you're going to face some skepticism. You're going to face some um, maybe you know, anger or resentment. And there was none, which I was just amazed by. And one guy who I spoke with, he's such a nice guy. He sort of said to me, you know, he, he came from a large family. And he actually had a split family. So some were pro-South Vietnam, others were pro-Viet Cong in the North. But he basically boiled down to his, you know, if it wasn't you, it was the French. If it wasn't the French, it was the Chinese, the Japanese. Everyone's always trying to take us over. We just want to lead ourselves. Right. And I said, okay, that makes that makes sense to me. I get that. Did you go, uh, did you go in the tunnels? I, there's tunnels that I've heard. Yeah, about I did. And, you know, what's amazing about those tunnels is that is the moment where when as soon as you go into that, you go, there's no way we would ever won this war. And they built these tunnels essentially the length of the country. If you're claustrophobic, um, you can't handle it from what I understand. No, I lasted about, uh, I'd say, a minute. And you go through these very dark, narrow tunnels and you hear these harrowing stories about how uh, you know people would live underneath these things for months at a time. But there's stories about units. There's like an Australian unit that went down there to sort of weed out Viet Cong and they were just completely lost forever. I mean, it's just scary stuff like that. It's very haunting without that. Wow. Yeah, I still want to go there, but again, I've got to, got to do it the, the way I could do it. If, well, Saigon has a lot of high-end places, Ho Chi Minh City, whatever you want to call it. So I think Let's go there, Luke. We'll take another trip. Good there. <laughs> when you think back, again, you... you your trip was that of a young person's trip, and what, or at least not a spoiled person's trip. I don't know how to work. Like I'm saying, you did things the, the rough and rugged way, yeah. um, which I could never do. My question is, of the countries you've seen, and I'll let people read the book to get through all the countries. There's so many. I, there's no time. Over 30. And so are there some that you look at now and say, you know what, as I get a little older, I have a family, I want to go back here and then do it maybe in a different way, maybe the way I like to do it. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's a lot of countries that didn't make the books. I went, over, I went to 67 overall throughout the course. Oh, wow, okay. And so there's a lot Volume of- Volume two. But yeah, right. And there's, so that, and that I actually ended up writing all about. I would say ones though that I would like to sort of go back and have uh, a, 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 a nicer experience <laughs> than, than I did uh, was there's one country that didn't make the book, which was a Nicaragua. And I went and drove around the entire place and I stayed in very humble places. And it was a beautiful country. I really greatly enjoyed it. Uh, and that started to get a little bit more of a tourist uh, sector going there. And that's one that I would sort of like to see how they, how they progress and what the costs of that are and what the benefits are uh, for sure. And there's always um, an interesting government situation going on there. So you always have yeah. to measure that but that's a place i'd like to get back to um cool uh i did ask you a version of this question when we were on tv and it's uh after 10 years you you come back home you're you're dealing with your dad's death but you are tasked by your mom with the notion of going through the attic right and going through all these boxes of his stuff mm. on television i asked you whether or not and you said uh, legends never die they leave 40 to 50 boxes of stuff around great line uh and i asked whether you on tv i asked whether you found anything that wowed you uh, and what went through your mind i i guess i can ask that piece again but i guess i want to say since that time now are there certain things you kept? I mean, I have, I've lost both my parents in recent few years and I just have stuff that surround me, my dad's wall, but just stuff that I, I can't give up. 
I'm sure the whiteboards of your dad are in the Smithsonian. I'm pretty sure about that. Are there things of your dad that you you need to keep close to you? I'm that way. Yeah, I have. Obviously, I have his watch. I have his wallet. I have some of these ties that he wore. Um, I have one of his blazers. So there's things like that, which you sort of keep and you can kind of see the silhouette of the man and the measure of the man be put together. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I was very lucky and fortunate that my father had such a public persona because there's endless amounts of recordings um, that really kind of keep yeah. him alive to a degree. So um, it's not everybody has the opportunity to fire up YouTube and can hear their dad's voice again. Uh, and that's been, and, and yeah, for some time that was haunting, but I've grown to sort of appreciate that and like that. And it puts a, puts a smile on, on his face. I always carry his mask card though in my wallet. That's the thing that I probably keep the closest. Yeah. I wear my dad's ring. I wear, I have my, some of my mom too. Just stuff that just makes me think. And your book is, I ask you that because your book is filled with the stories and I'll let people read those stories of the times your dad shows himself to you often in a rainbow uh back at the memorial service and, and just on and on and on and of course we talked on television about the story of your going to the middle east um and and, and finding the buffalo bills you said yamuki i'll give you the hebrew for it kippah uh <laughs> that you want to wear about training some hebrew but um uh, you do believe that that your dad is always there is that about being is that a religious spiritual person what what I mean, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, it could be uh, spirituality, it could be religion, it could be faith, it could be mysticism. I mean, I think people have all sorts of different feelings for it, but that's actually a part of the book that I've gotten so much uh, positive reception about is that idea of looking for signs as they show themselves. I mean, just in like the last few weeks, um, I did an event in boston uh and it was for a, a late friend of mine named Corey griffin and Corey was number 11 in hockey that was his number it was it was simultaneous with his you posted about i saw your post number 11 yeah and so you know the day that we have his event the new york times bestseller list comes back out and i'm number 11 right so it's like things like and, and, and then i spent seven weeks on the list my dad's favorite number was seven i mean there's things like that that sort of show themselves um some of the weirdest moments are will be like I'll intu I'll intuitively think about something regarding my father and regarding maybe like a song. Uh, the weirdest one of all time is I was thinking about Ricky Nelson, the Garden Party song. You know, yeah. I, 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 you might as well uh, please your, you can't please everyone. So you might as well please yourself. I was going through a difficult time and I was thinking about that song and how my dad talked to me about it one time. And I pulled over and I gassed up my car and then I turned on the car and there it was on the radio. <laughs> so it's just like things like that that are very odd and strange yeah. that you carry with you. I'm just thinking it's too bad your dad's favorite number wasn't 52. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> wish we had talked to him about that. Um, we just a couple of minutes left and we'll get cut off. But, but very quickly, one of the things, of course, you did lose your dad young. You've talked about that earlier. So you go to the doctor after all, and you write about it in the book, and and um, it looks like you too say, "Hey, Luke, get things together." You, that's the part of your dad's life you don't want to follow. No, and that's something you know. That, uh, since he passed at, at fifty eight, I sort of became a guinea pig, especially regarding cardiology, and and trying to be very much in front of that and not have the same type of fate. 
I think with everybody, you know, it, you can go, it, it's very beneficial to go get some medical care to sort of baseline yourself, the beginning, EKG, uh, blood pressure, uh, cholesterol, that type of stuff. It's very important to do when you're younger. I think people sort of say, oh, I don't have to worry about that until I'm 40 or 50. It's like, no, you really start to start worrying about it in your 20s, especially if you have a family history, uh, because a lot of the decisions you make as a young person can can be harmful later on if you continuously make them. But it's just, you know, I'll say it's just weight and working out and eating right. Uh, like for everybody else, I think it's a struggle. Uh, you know, I, I do my best and there's certainly times where I'm like, Oh, I look really good. And there's other times just like, okay, I got to get back to those salads and, and do some more running. But, um, you can never really quite turn that off. You know, I, I saw a bumper sticker many years ago that I always has been fixated in my mind, which just says, Ignore your health and it'll go away. <laughs> so, Good point. Yeah. You don't want to do that. <laughs> you, you do close the book with, or, or towards the end of the book, you say, Dad, you're here no matter what. I don't have to look for you. And the title of the book is Look for Be There. You explain in the book where that came from. It was a line he said to you. But bottom line to this all, I think, is that um, when we lose our parents, and I say we because you see, we I have to connect with you. I read your story, but your story, I have to connect in my story, in my head. And that's, that's part of what the book does. Uh, and they are always with us. And I think your dad will always be with you. Um, congratulations. You you deserve several weeks on the New York Times list, which you had. And I hope a volume two comes from this. And I know we haven't seen the last of you, Luke Russell. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your support throughout uh, this entire process. And folks in Chicago, we did really well in the Midwest. So it's, uh, it was very nice. And it's just so many similarities to Chicago and Buffalo. And that was really neat. And to your see. dad loved it here. No, it's the you, best Luke. place. Best food. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.